today's episode. Meet the hosts. Mr. McWilliam shares his favourite stories. And Mr. Barrow speaks about his mum. Hello everyone, welcome to The Reason Podcast. It's me, Casper, with Aaron Burns. Hi guys. And in today's episode, uh, now we've been interviewing Mr. McWilliams, uh, but first, we'd quite like to cover what the podcast will be all about and what it'll include in future. Yeah, so um, over the next few months, uh, we're going to be releasing a podcast maybe once a term, once a half term, um, but we'll be having regular podcasts come to you with uh, the news, interviews with teachers, uh, covering the the latest topics and some uh, some special guests from younger years, from our year, uh, as I say, teachers, and we're going to be uh, doing some game segments. Uh, we're going to be answering questions from you. We're going to be covering everything you want to hear. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Please do make sure you get in contact if you've got any other ideas. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're planning on involving the whole school in the podcast. If you'd like to be on the podcast, have a question for us. Uh, a topic you'd like us to talk about, please do let us know. Uh, our emails are 18 burnsy at uk and 18 aldersy at uk. Uh, so please uh, let us know if you have anything you want to hear about or any questions you have or if you want to be featured on the podcast. Without further ado, sit back and enjoy my conversation with Mr. McWilliam. So hello sir, how are you doing? Hi, thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's a pleasure, pleasure, pleasure <laughs> to have you on. First question I've got. Go for it. I want you to describe Mr. McWilliam in one sentence, as, as quickly as possible. M- me in one sentence? Yes. Um, oh, crikey. Um, quickly as possible. <laughs> I'm buying time, aren't I? <laughs> I'm trying to slow the process down. Um, you, you probably don't believe it, but caring, sympathetic, um, really wants the very best from every student he teaches. Oh, wow. Good family man. Upstanding gentleman, so I hear. Well, wears a nice aftershave, good shoes, keeps your shirt tucked in. Ostensibly a, a gentleman then. Uh, yeah, so I know there's a lot of people out there in the in the lower years that don't know a lot about, about your subject, what oh, the A-level okay, entails. I don't know that much about it. <laughs> so you're, of course, an economics teacher, mm-hmm. the one and only. Uh, so could you tell us a bit about the A-level, what it entails and, and why people should choose it? Well, the, the A-level itself is, is, is split fairly evenly between a part of economics called microeconomics and a part of economics called macroeconomics. Now, micro, as its name suggests, deals with the very small units. So the economics, as we see them with the individual consumer, the individual firm, uh, <clears throat> etc. Whereas macro deals with the big aggregates. You know, so think about the four big aggregates that we see. So economic growth, inflation, unemployment the balance of trade and as well as understanding each of these um, as individual units quite quite discreet because economics is a system we need to, we need to have this sort of systems thinking approach this systems dynamics so we need to be able to integrate all of these things together so why should people want to study a subject like that because it sounds quite hard well the reason why we, we study it is because you get incredibly good um, critical thinking skills because you don't take anything at face value. You need everything strongly supported by evidence, which if you want to go off and go to university or you want to go off and get an apprenticeship for a professional job is what you'll be doing in your in your daily uh, work. Plus as well, another good reason for doing it is because if you are uh, just 
interested in why the world works the way it does. For example, why do this group of people have a lot more money than this group of people, for example? Or why do we see banks behaving the way that they do? Or is it true uh, that, that you know, governments use taxes or is it not true? We, we have all of these debates. We look into all of these issues. So, you know, there's, 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 there's very little that, that's out of bounds in, in economics. And, you know, the, the debates can, can range quite widely. So, you know, the, there should be every, something in there everybody so whether you're into ecological economics whether into sort of labor market whether into like the big aggregates like unemployment or you like the small units and you like your maths as well you like it getting a bit nitty-gritty we can we can be everything for everybody we're very good at differentiating well you've got me sold well hope so <laughs> uh of course we've learned about the subject now learn about the man well the, the man behind the mister okay if you will so what was your life like before teaching? What what what, what previous employment have you had? <laughs> any any key stories that stick out? Well, how long, trousers. How long have you got? Because um, I uh, well, I'm I'm a very very much um, even though I may look like the middle class professional and talk like the middle class professional and use lots of long sophisticated words at heart, I am a working class boy from a very deprived Leeds council estate, and some of those traits never never quite leave you uh, for example i um can can um not always have as much patience or whatever as as perhaps is needed in the situation just because i want to get things done because you know it's i've got that drive behind me you know i i change my life I want people to change change their lives um so i've got that basic driver and um i, I took that through through sport that that really pushed me on that that little bit of a I don't know you wouldn't call it a killer instinct but you would call it certainly there's a there's a there's a focus there and a drive and mm -hmm. and you know I, I played rugby uh, represented um, Yorkshire a couple of years was fairly good at um, athletics uh, sort of specialized in the 400 for a couple of years so there's all of that in in, in, in my um, in, in my background um, but then in terms of school and, and employment um, I, I had one or two interesting part-time jobs um, should, should, I think it's best described as I was a performance assistant in a nightclub in Ibiza I think we'll leave it at that okay not nothing too bad I'm sure that you actually know the story um, but we've got to be delicate here because there may be younger students however I have been employed also by Humberside Police as a police officer uh, for not a long time. I'm sure we know the story that I managed to be employed by them for exactly 30 minutes. <laughs> 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 I changed my mind after being given a job. Uh, I, I managed to be an accountant for a little bit longer. I managed three months uh, and then decided that whilst accountancy was fine, other accountants were very not fine. Uh, and then I thought, well, what do I really want to do um, and uh, a few of my mates were already either teachers or trained to be teachers. I looked at what they were doing and uh, and and the, the the enjoyment they were getting out of it. I mean, I, they, I mean even as as a trainee accountant, I was far better paid than they were as teachers. But you know, life isn't about earning money. Life is about leaving your mark. And I always say, if I am able to make a difference to at least one student's life positively whether that's pastorally whether it's academically you know that that being around me in the way that I am that it improves them then you know I, I think I've been a success in my career I know it sounds a bit corny a bit cheesy but it is 
generally what, what, what motivates me. Wow, that's comprehensive. What an inspiring man. I can talk for England. <laughs> it's, it's coming from Leeds. We're not shy of talking. <laughs> it's great for a podcast. Absolutely. Makes for a great listen. <laughs> um, so if you, could, if you could tell one story, one full-length story oh. from, from your life, which would you choose and, and please share? Oh, man, alive. Um, it depends how much I trouble I want to get myself from the police. <laughs> <laughs> because um, not that I was wayward as a youth, but... The circumstances I grew up in, uh, inevitably that um, things happen and you're around those things and stuff. So we'll just stay away from that part of my life. I'm a very different person to that. Um, a good story. Crikey, what's a good story? I, love, I, love the, I suppose the um, performance assistant, <coughs> excuse me, cough, uh-huh, in a nightclub. Uh, would would be a very good story. Um, it's left to me with a lifelong allergy to gold paint. Uh, um, so yeah, and um, I even have to look at a, a tub of gold paint and I break out now in a rash. But that's another matter. Um, I, don't, I don't really have good stories to tell um, that that are safe. What about, I was, I was recommended uh, Dead Man Trousers. Oh, yes, I can tell that one. That's good. That's a good story, right? So, yeah, so before I met my, uh, my gorgeous wife um, many, many years ago, so she was doing uh, a university, she was a couple of years ahead of me, and she was doing um, a, a program called Work America, where she went to work in um, a chain of supermarkets in New Jersey. And part of the deal was you worked all summer, you got paid, uh, but you got two weeks on your visa to sort of travel around America. And she spent one of the weeks in New York. And um, she was in like a, a traveler's hostel. And she was met with other, other um, you know, um, gappers and all that sort of stuff. And um, they were going out to a nightclub quite, quite locally. And she thought, I need, I need fancier clothes than I've got. Okay, I, I want to, and, and at the time, Levi 501s washed through, bit of a rip on the knees, bit worn through, red tab. They were the big thing. Okay, they were the big thing. You need, you need a pair of those. But she couldn't afford them, you know. Um, so she thought, I'll go and see if I can find a vintage pair. Now, nobody called it vintage then. Vintage now we know is a euphemism for like used, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> a bit scabby. All right, but we call it vintage now, and we don't call it scabby. We call it patina. All right. So anyway. So she was going looking out for a pair of scabby old jeans that were nice and cheap, that still look quite good. So she went to see the receptionist downstairs and said, any, any cheap stores? And the receptionist said, oh yeah, brilliant. You need to, if you want that sort of thing, go down here. So she went to the shop down there and she was amazing in there. Loads of clothes, all of that right style, all that really vintage, worn and stuff like that. So she had an amazing pair of jeans. Wasn't quite the pair she wanted, but looked lovely anyway. So. She's at the nightclub dancing away, you know, obviously inevitably men chat to women, she gets chatting back to the men, and the, and the guy says, oh, nice pair of jeans. And uh, she says, yeah, really nice. Says, Where'd you get them from? And he's like, genuine, so she's like engaging, oh yeah, this sort. And he's like face dropped, he said, you've no idea what that <laughs> shop is, have you? She went, no, no, it's a vintage shop. No, no. When people die, and go to the morgue and they strip their bodies of the clothes. <laughs> That's where the clothes end up. And she's like, oh, right, yeah, I get it now. I wondered why there's some like unusual stains or there was like some like holes in stuff. You're like, yeah, but there'd be like bullet holes and stuff. <laughs> anyway, so now, because we've still got the jeans in the house, I used to have tremendous fun with my kids when they were growing up. And um, 
They used to talk about the haunted jeans, the dead men's jeans. And a, a favourite story of mine at, at bedtime was to say, can you hear it? It's moving around, isn't it? And like I tap the side of the bed or something, I do like this. Be scared. Be very scared. And like when your children are about three, two years old, they don't know quite that dad is joking. Anyway, so I've jeans. given my kids lifelong trauma about going into the roof space. They simply will not go up there. So my son now is nearly 25. He's, he's, he's about six foot six. He's a hulking brute. He won't go up into the roof <laughs> space by himself. And my daughter sometimes won't even go upstairs by herself <laughs> because they're so scared. So um, um, they, they will watch all these like, you know, right, quite, you know, um, Korean horror films where up in the attic there's like the, the green zombie that like rips your head off and stuff and that. But they won't go up in our attic because apparently there's a pair of jeans walking around up there just ready to get you. One day. I'm coming to get you. Well, I can tell. As Is that I a said, good story? Yeah. Great family man, clearly. <laughs> as you said. Well. Oh well. Debatable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, fantastic. However, this is a news podcast, mm. and as an economic expert, well, I, I was reading recently. There's a lot of talk. You're reading recently. That was an economics expert. <laughs> no, I've been reading recently. Okay, a lot of debate around the economy of China. Yes, versus the United States of America. Yeah, so we're not talking about buffaloes then. Well, give us some time. Oh, right, there. good. <laughs> Uh, so, what is your take on um, on the burning question? Will China overtake the USA? I think economy? I think it's inevitable in the, in the, in the way that we see economies and empires grow and, and decline. And I think very much at the moment we're seeing the American empire entering its its decline phase. Um, we see the increase in military action. Uh, America has a long history of colonial activity, resource hoarding, um, but there's increasing resistance to that. And people are not prepared to tolerate the sort of militaristic intervention or indeed the non-militaristic intervention, the way that America is using um, world um, governance architecture such as um, the IMF and the World Bank to deliberately uh, impoverish certainly countries in the global minority in the South um, to... Um, keep on making sure they've got access to resources so they can keep growing. I think we're seeing a, a clear movement against that now. So, for example, we're seeing the, the G77 uh, movement of countries, which is more than that. It's 100, basically, it's all the global south. And, and they're creating their own block. And we start to see movements now for de-dollarization. So increasingly, we're seeing that the, the dollar is probably going to have less uh, importance in world trade. And we're seeing countries, rather than saying, look, we're going to use a dollar as a common currency, we're now starting to see them doing their own currency swaps and, and working out that way. So, for example, we saw Brazil and Argentina uh, work, work, working on that idea. Um, but we're also seeing the shift now of China and inevitably, you know, more more innovation. They're the ones at the cutting edge of science and technology. For example, just look at the range of renewable energies and solar fields and turbines that they're using. Yes, there's still a high proportion of fossil fuels. 
but certainly they've got a much more enlightened view about that than than America. And we've got to got to ask, well, why why are why is the US so attached to fossil fuels, which is pretty much a 19th, 20th century technology, and we can't move away from the fact that it's obviously very profit related there. Um, whereas um, China sees growth in in renewables, and I think we're going to see more of that um, approach generally. Um, I mean, we have to be very open-eyed about it. I mean, I think both the US and China are quite authoritarian cultures. You know, okay, the US doesn't necessarily advertise its authoritarianism <clears throat> such as the Chinese do. But then again, you know, look at look at how we see America being authoritarian. It's very authoritarian against countries that want the resources off them. And also, um, at risk of sounding a little bit um, controversial for a student podcast... I'll be careful, don't worry. <laughs> I look at, look at me like, what's he going to say? But we, we know that there's a very high incidence of um, police shootings um, that are targeted at different um, racial groups in America. So we do see quite authoritarian action um, taking place. But with the authoritarian aspect, um, we have to be very open-eyed about that. But um, look at how... China has built its sort of empire of connections compared to how America has done it. America, very militaristic, and you're either with us or against us. And if you're against us, we're going to use all these levers of control to, to bring you into our camp or you, we're going to immiserate you. <clears throat> China, with its um, Belt and Road Initiative, is very much, yes, we know it's about resources. There's only one reason why China is building a railway from the middle of nowhere in Tan, uh, Tanzania to the coast. It's to get those resources out of the country. But they've done it in a much more diplomatic, um, non-militaristic way that has much more of a popular buy-in with, with the local population. And, and I think if you're going to win hearts and minds, I, I know which approach I would take. And as a result, therefore, when you have that global competition of ideas, you know, whose economic plan for the world are we going to favour, then it's no competition in the global south. You know, you, you know um, very clearly, the global South like what they're seeing with, with the way that China are developing the world. Okay, everybody's worried about the authoritarian aspect, but there's a reason why the global South wants to pull away from the American way of doing things. So I know I'm sort of not just talking about economics, I'm going on to issues of governance and, and, and social relations and stuff, but I don't think you can separate one, one from the other. I think to understand that question, I think you do need to see it in, in the round mm. yeah and as everything is so intertwined obviously it's, it's a quite a broad question to mm. answer what would you say is the main like marker of one economy being stronger than the other and and how do Ch uh, China and the US compare in that regard um, well incomes per head are, are substantially lower uh, in China at the moment but again that that, that could change um, but I think it's the growth rate and I think it's resources I mean China has, um, because it's got the huge population, uh, has been able to sustain a very high rate of economic growth. I mean, for China, 4 or 5% is seen as poor growth. Now, if, um, a, glo if, if a, a country in the global north got 4 or 5%, they, they would be high-fiving each other, thinking they're sort of economic geniuses uh, for achieving that. And, and the, the, when, I don't think we're going to see the classic... 12-15% rates of growth that we saw uh, previously with that um, in China. However, you know, we're going to see average about 7-8% or 8%, and at some point, inevitably, it could, because um, it's national income, it's a rate of growth, 
okay at some point China is going to overtake America in the average income um, per head and I think that that will be a real wake-up I think a lot of people are quite complacent oh the, 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 we will never be caught will never, but no um, the, the, we see the way that the world industrializes or, or, or the way that economic activity moves around let's just take our own example from shipbuilding <clears throat> you know until like the early 19, uh, 1920s the UK dominated shipbuilding and then it lost its competitive advantage because of unit labour costs and then shipbuilding moved and it just keeps moving you know um, after the second world war it went to um, Korea um, then it went to China and now it's like uh, Africa, Nigeria and ultimately because wages are growing around the world it, it's quite theoretically possible that shipbuilding could come back to the UK because all manufacturers care about is unit labour costs ultimately in this globalised economy and take that example of, of why China at the moment then for example China is dominating uh, EV production and you know you can see how that could be another engine of growth and at some point China is not going to be as effective at, at, at um, building electric cars so electric cars it may be cheaper to actually build them in America at some point you know you're going to have all these weird things um, as, as these other countries grow and say empires grow empires shrink um, so I, I, mean, I, I haven't got the answer clearly you can see from, from what I'm saying but what I do recognise is that we see this cyclical activity and just because you're the dominant preeminent country at the moment there is no guarantee that that's going to continue Okay, and I think we're seeing that now with, with China's rise. And I think, given if we had this conversation in a centrist time, okay, I'd have, I'd, I'd have even less hair, and maybe you would have no hair as well. Okay. <laughs> Don't need to go 100 years for that. <laughs> However, you know, I think we'd be looking at a very different world order. And I think the power of the world is steadily moving now back to the global south. You know, it's been in the global north for a good century and a bit. Now it's moving back to the global south because that's where the young population is. That's where your workers are going to be. Mm -hmm. So uh, recently, obviously, the COVID pandemic, mm. that obviously had a huge toll on many economies. What was the effect for, for China and USA for, on the back of that? Well, on the one hand, you could say China handled it in a very authoritarian way and had these really extended lockdown periods. Um, of, of months at a time whereas there was the resistance to it in America and you had an organised campaign of um, scepticism about the whole thing, does Covid even exist I mean you had the president who to, I mean the president's first role is to ensure the welfare of the population and even the president was trying to cast doubt on you know vaccines and was Covid a real thing or was it just a bit of a cold all, all of the, the get, get, you know, it, let's ignore the fact that it was laying waste to old people, it was laying waste to people who had immune, uh, uh, suppressed immune uh, systems already. That, that none of that seemed to matter in this sort of post-fact, post-truth world. If you think your vested interests are being challenged by current situation, then just lie about it, try to deny that it exists. Now that speaks to a certain mindset. Um, whereas w the way that I think the, the China went about the COVID, the severe lockdowns, absolutely, we can't deny that there are um, going to be mental health issues within the Chinese population, and we know that's developing. However, <coughs> um, the COVID was, was um, probably one of the first countries to come out of lockdown much more quickly, and even though COVID hotspots are developed, um, because the, the Chinese government have this very effective blueprint now, we can see <coughs> that they're onto it very quickly. They do not want um, 
COVID spreading again. And look how much the economy's rebounded very, very quickly as well. You know, that shows you the underlying resilience of the economy compared to the US economy. Now, the US economy's needed this, you know, hundreds of, of billions of dollars of their uh, Inflation Reduction Act to try to get the economy started again after, after COVID. You know, China's has come back naturally because they've got this resilience, I think, in their underlying structures that the US hasn't. The US is too financialized. It relies on the financial sector performing well for the rest to perform well, whereas China isn't. It's got more of a balanced economy and, you know, the, the manufacturing sector can support the financial sector and vice versa. They seem to work much more uh, in a more complementary way to the benefit of the overall population. Now, I, know, I don't want to think I'm, I'm sort of some super fan of China. I'm, I'm trying to be objective. I'm just trying to say how I see it. Um, but I do at the moment see, I do, I do think generally <coughs> that um, Chinese politicians and, and, and technocrats seem to be more capable than, than, than American ones at, at creating um, uh, national wealth and also not just the, the wealth of the economy, but also the wealthy people, you know, the, the um, satisfied population as such. Yeah, rather comprehensive uh so for any of you that were wondering about the the chinese versus u.s economy debate there you go i think that's a <laughs> i'm sure it was a burning question for very many of you uh now so i've heard obviously you've got quite a passion for american buffalo well <laughs> yes so w would you like to to speak for a moment well about, I, about I, the sad fate <laughs> of these buffalo well and I, I did warn Casper that you may quite not quite like the angle I take on things. Now, I'm sure it's no surprise to the older students that I have a very specific political outlook, that I tend to look at life through a class-based lens. So my argument about why the buffalo, people may go, well, wasn't it sad about the buffalo? They're not there anymore. I think that the, the issue of the buffalo was, was, was classic, that common thing we see with settler colonial activity that how do you land grab how do you can take control of resources off the existing incumbent population well you take away their means of survival so how often are we seeing the same pattern through history we saw it the way that um, white european populations essentially decimated the population uh, or, or genocide or ethnic cleanse, whatever you want to call it, of the First Nation societies, okay, by taking away their means of, 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 of subsistence, which was the buffalo. Um, how did they do that? The mechanism was, let's go create a market for buffalo skins, buffalo hides, and that then incentivizes lots of white hunters to start shooting buffalo. Now, the ulterior motive there was, yes, all these buffalo, and, you know, we can see ancient pictures, and ancient pictures, old pictures, of literally huge hills of buffalo bones. The, the, the scale of the killing of buffaloes was, was, was phenomenal. A lot of the time, the meat was just discarded because they just wanted the hide and things like that. So, um, whereas the, the, the indigenous population would have used the whole buffalo, but the ulterior motive was to take away 
that means of survival. So if you no longer can sustain yourself outside of the um, set of economic and social relations that the um, settler colonialist system is trying to impose on you, then you have to abide by like, The only way you can survive is to live by their rules. So we saw that increasingly you can't survive on the land you're on, you migrate to different land and increasingly that land gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So you, you, you place some reservations. Where else, where else have we seen that? Historically, I see a link there in the way that um, enclosure was used to take away the means of survival of, of the working classes and, 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 and the farming classes, you know, people who lived off the land, who didn't need to sell their labour to some exploitative um, factory owner, some exploitative workshop owner. But once you then enclose land and you say, well, if you go on this land, even if you take some animals to feed yourself, well, that, that's essentially a death sentence. We will kill you because of that. Well, you're, you're strongly disincentivizing people from that. And, yeah, and therefore you're saying, well, the only way I can sustain myself now, the only thing I have left to sell you is my labor. So um, I will have to come and work for you. And because you know that I've got no alternative, you are going to pay me desperately low wages and I'm just going to live this miserable, economically deprived life. Now, if you can see the pattern between those two things, then we see that pattern through a lot of things. The way that you have a dominant uh, system moving in and taking over um, um, uh, very rich, varied cultures. There is nothing degenerate about these other cultures. I mean, that's the whole way that we sell it. Oh, well, you know, let's go back to the First Nation. There was a very clear PR campaign that somehow these were uncivilised Stone Age people and they deserved, you know, to be civilised. You know, of course they're going to be grateful for learning Western philosophy. Well, that's quite high-handed, that. <laughs> you know, what was wrong with their own philosophy? It's very rich and varied. Uh, you know, what's to say that their civilization was not actually at a higher peak of development than yours? So just because... The technological means of expressing that maybe not as you would expect to see it um, doesn't mean that you were you were better or they were somehow degenerate. So I think we, we saw this whole um, sort of supremacist idea that you know we are a superior culture and civilization, therefore we can do this to you. So I know I've sort of moved off the point about buffaloes. However, the buffaloes are not the thing. The buffaloes were killed. So we could make control of another group of people and make them live by our rules so that we could then take their resources. So a lot of the wealth of America was, was based on the fact that they managed to cut off an alternative means of, of survival for the um, pre-existing population. Um, and then that is a blueprint, though, for the way that we see um, settler colonialist um, systems moving in. So at risk of saying something that might get your podcast banned, are we seeing that in a current conflagration in the Middle East? Haven't we seen this in the Middle East for the last century or so? You know, what was all that rush for the Middle East about after World War One? There's oil in the Middle East. It's a resource. Okay. I mean, it's too trite to say, look, everything's about oil. But certainly for the first 50 years, uh, probably more of the, of the 20th century, it was all about oil. You know, it's moved on a bit now. I get that. You know, uh, and we're seeing other reasons for, for you know, resource hoarding or land grabbing, whatever you want to call it. But 
hopefully you see the historical pattern there. Mm -hmm. This same pattern of controlling resources so you can, can take control and, and, and immiserate a population so that you can then exploit their bodies, you know, their labour for low cost. You know, why? So you can maximise your profit or your return off them. You know, surely I'm not the only one that's not, that's seeing, hang on, there's a pattern here. Why is nobody else seeing that pattern? Yeah, I think that's the value of learning things like history and and, and the yeah. the history of the economics and yeah. the politics is yeah. that you can look to the past and, and people never learn yeah. and people never change and you, you see patterns yeah. today. I just pick up on that. To me, it's the whole value of um, the type of education that you can receive at a school like this because, you know, we, we place as much value on the arts as on the sciences, you know, and people are strongly encouraged. Like, go and study history with economics, with English literature, with, you know, um, psychology, with RS, with, you know, what you, you named the, the combinations there, because these are all essential components of understanding the way that we are as people. You know, there's no way you can just know economics and know how people behave, you know. I mean, history is a science of human behaviour as much as economics is. It's a science, you know, it's how we try to explain behaviour of people in the past. You know, it's, it's like with archaeology, it's like with anthropology, you know, all we're trying to do is explain why people have behaved the way that, 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 that they do or why they end up believing the things that they do. And because obviously that's going to determine the way they express themselves, whether verbally or physically, you know, in, in their actions. And we were talking about this earlier on in the podcast as well as the soft skills and everything that you talk about from, from subjects like history and economics, an understanding of the way people work, the way the world works and, and has worked can lead to discussions, intellectual discussions, intriguing discussions with other people, but also just a more fundamental understanding of how the world has worked and Absolutely. does work now. And you can, you can get a richer understanding of, of life as it is. It's not just about qualifications and it's not just about um, getting to the next step. It is also about enriching your own cultural capital yeah. is and absolutely no cultural capital is, is a great is a great word and i can i can say something about that in a moment because to me it's such a a, a critical component of, of a young person's education but one of the things i like about working at Ermisteads in particular is because we have people who may teach a subject but they have they, they're coming from very different starting points so you know it's, it's no great surprise for example that that, that me and Mr. Barrett probably have very different political stances on stuff and, and, and you know, um, because, because of the nature of our, our backgrounds. However, you've got to think about what benefit that brings for students. Think about the range of ideas and that competition of ideas that you're being exposed to. You know, and you, can, you, can, you can hear me explain something. You know, for example, um, the, the causes of hyperinflation in the Weimar Republic, you get it, a very economics basis there that, you know, um, what causes hyperinflation? Well, <clears throat> what most people see as hyperinflation, that, that domestic rapid rise in prices is actually a symptom of the real cause, which is a foreign debt crisis. OK, and then you can take that into a history classroom. And, and argue that debate and vice versa. You can learn the more, uh, the, the, the historiography behind something and, and, and those links there and maybe a more legislative process behind it and what were the sort of governmental actions taken <laughs> and then they bring that into my lesson when we're doing it and, and part that and you end up having such an enriched experience. But this is all part of the wider thing about cultural capital. Um, when I was in my previous job, as you know, um, I used to... Um, work in a school in South Button, a very, very deprived area. Uh, and one of my missions was about cultural capital. And, and I used to obviously 
say it in a, in a more laboured way but the point was if you want to be taken seriously you have to talk seriously you have to dress seriously because people judge you on what they say it's not fair but they judge you so if you can use words correctly technical words people will think that you are you know and maybe not what you're coming across as you know and it's that whole idea of the cultural capital it's the ideas running around your head and if you can present you know really well-formed crystallized arguments that are rounded and you can appreciate someone else's point of view and you can articulate your point of view whether it's verbally or in writing then it, it does give you a leg up it, it clearly does i mean i'm not going to blow my own trumpet but when i was 14 15 i clicked on you know i i heard this term <coughs> cultural capital i was i was really keen on sociology it's what was at the time and um i read about it and there was some, some french philosopher and you know um Boudrier and all these people like that talking about it and thinking this is this is my key this is my this is how i'm going to do it okay because i know that i'm brighter than my friends well i appear to be i'm sure i wasn't i was just that i had more of a knack with language and you can see i can talk I can talk the back legs of a donkey, you know. So if I'm connecting these words up and I'm convincing you that I know what I'm talking about, you're much more likely to find me a convincing person and therefore you are going to think I'm credible and therefore you're going to make opportunities for me, you know. So when I was an air cadet, it was the same thing. Uh, when, when, when I played rugby, it was the same thing. When I was a captain, because I was the one that thought about the language I was using, thought about the ideas, and I try and encourage this, you know, uh, in, in all students, and in particular, my last place I worked at, and I know it's sort of gone off, but you can, I hope you see the bigger point I'm making about cultural capital. So important that you are taken seriously in society, but you control how seriously you're taken. You can overcome, you know, the, the fact that if I speak to my mum on the phone tonight, I will start talking afterwards in my very distinct, quite hard Leeds accent. And it takes a while for me to, to come back into what I call my sort of just general northern accent. But I'll be, and I can't, I can't just slip into it now. I can't just start speaking like, I've got to have like my mum there and I'll just like slip in, my sympathetic Leeds accent will come out. And I, I won't say, you would think that's not Mr. Matt Williams speaking. That doesn't sound like his voice. That sounds like some like, you know, very different person, you know. Um, but but I think you have to do it consciously as well. Mm. I know, gone off the point, but I have, I've got a bee in my bonnet about cultural capital. I yeah. think it's so important. And especially, there's a lot of people, even for like, so obviously there's a value for people that may be perceived as less intelligent, but also like super geniuses, like, that can, that can do any math problem or understand any mm. science thing. If you can't convey that information, absolutely. there's no, you yeah. can't do anything with yeah. it. Yeah, and, no, yeah I, there's no point. Absolutely, sorry, I was, I was, I was, I'm not meant to cut you off. Um, Richard Feynman, the um, physicist, one of his sort of famous quotations was, <clears throat> if you can't explain your ideas to a five-year-old, you don't understand them. Mm. That's that idea there. And he's so right, really, is that, you know, you've got to tailor your approach to your to your audience. And if you can't have the same ideas and explain them, so then you, you don't understand them well enough yourself, which is that whole mm. cultural capital thing, definitely. Yeah. Well, that was, a, that was a long discussion, but now we now must get to the bit that everyone's oh, been waiting for. The mastermind. The mastermind. Oh, crazy. So your, your, your chosen topic of expertise was... The uh, the literature of J M Keynes. Can 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 I just qualify this? I actually gave you several topics, 
I gave you a choice. I said the UK macroeconomy mm-hmm. since 1979. Boring. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think it's a bit rock and roll. It rocks my world. UK monetary policy since 1979. Mm-hmm. I would marry that. UK fiscal policy since 1979. Mm-hmm. I would cook its tea. Okay, I would I would treat it very specially. And I said, the the, the, the economic writings of J.M. Keynes. Mm. You said everything else is boring. I want the writings of J.M. Keynes. So I've got there by default. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, to be honest, oh well. Talking about monetary policy, how yeah. exciting. I know, nothing more exciting, sir. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark, Mark this McWilliam's got a red tie on as well, and his northern pity. What did we say about cultural capital just now? <laughs> just a moment ago. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm uh, yeah, looking forward to my get to do. <laughs> talk about barber jackets and other things. Like, yeah, flat cap. Yeah, uh, green wellies. Yeah. With a little stroppy things on the side. Hunter wellies. <laughs> That's it, hunter wellies, yeah, That's see. It. Yeah, That's yeah. it, yeah. Uh, uh, how, how about super rich people who laugh like a horse? Yes, that's <laughs> they do. true. That's the, they, they have this high-pitched whinny. It's not really a laugh. It's more of a... It's, it's just a noise. It's just a cultural thing, isn't it? And yeah, also yeah. The, just the general, like, yeah. the... Oh, 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 yeah. That kind of noise, yeah. yeah. And Pims. Yeah, I love Pims. Oh, Pims it's evil. It's evil. Pims is great. No. Pims is British no. summer. And, and what's that horrible elderflower? What, what's wrong oh, with elderflower? Served at year 13 parents' evening. It smells like wee. <laughs> my, my mother makes the most delicious elderflower cordial. <laughs> no, and, uh, you've just closed that argument off because if I say anything now, I'm dissing your mum, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, that is exactly <laughs> And then we've so got beef. You said that about my mother. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Y- your yeah. mum. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, exactly, your mum. So. Your, your mum's elderflower <laughs> smells like wheat. Yeah, exactly. So, actually, that was the Morrison's elderflower cordial. Oh, God. Oh, right. So, but do you not feel like that's just a wonderful introduction to uh, our school? It tastes delicious. I would prefer giving everyone a good mug of Marmite tea. Interesting. In fairness, only about four teachers out of the whole <laughs> year 13 staff actually accepted the elderflower tea. All the truths. Many are of them were thirsty. All the said, truths. Oh, can I have some water, please? And I was like, sorry, it's elderflower cordial. And they went, oh, I won't then. Really? <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. Mm. I, it, you know, it wasn't even my idea, it was someone else's idea. Oh, oh that's not what I've heard. I think only one teacher said, I'm not drinking that, it smells like wee. <laughs> that's, the, that's, that's been most of the responses. Outrageous. Outrageous. Anyway, right, I, I, it's been lovely to feature in this podcast. All, <laughs> of, all of one minute. And uh, yeah, I wish you all a lovely half hour. Thank you. You too. you too. See you later. <laughs> anyway. Go for it. Come on. Let's, let me embarrass uh, myself. I am unfortunately unaware of the difficulty of these questions due to my lack of expertise on right. the topic. I've also integrated five general knowledge questions. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, and we shall have a timer. Uh, a timer? Yes. Oh, man. We, we haven't done this before, and I don't know how well I, I'll read the questions out, so we've given you a lenient two minutes. Okay. We'll see how How many goes. questions in total? Fifteen. Okay, right. And uh, if you run out of time on question three, or I keep getting the questions wrong, we'll That's just do okay. it again and cut it out. <laughs> <Yeah>. So. <laughs> when are you ready? Are you ready? I'm ready. Go for it, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. J.M. Keynes is known as the father of which branch of economics? Keynesian economics. Of the two. Keynesian? <laughs> <laughs> or economic? The t- 
Micro or macro? Oh, macroeconomics, right. <laughs> Did you like it? I thought the clues were the name. Keynes, Keynesian. Hmm. I, I not yeah, saying because he's a macroeconomist. Say, yeah. Saying that though, he did start off as a microeconomist, but we won't go down that route. But then he grew into a yeah, six foot seven. Yeah, <laughs> very tall macroeconomist. You know, he had a foot fetish as well. Did it really? Yes. Wow. I know. Well, that's actually the question Bluesbury group. Eight. All right. So. <laughs> you learn all sorts reading Nicholas Caldor's uh, biography. Of him. <laughs> right. Should we try that again? <laughs> Well, not mention foot fetishism. Oh, well, no, that's, as I say, yeah, question seven. Wrong, yeah. um, right, three, two, one, go. James Keynes is known as the father of which branch of economics? Macroeconomics, specifically Keynesian macroeconomics. <laughs> Correct. Thank you. Finish this famous J.M. Keynes quote. It is better to be roughly right than what? Oh, man, alive. Um... I'm going to paraphrase. Better be roughly right than, than. Oh, I can't think. Go on. I have to finish it off. Precisely wrong. Thank you. What are the four sectors of the Keynesian model? Four sectors of the Keynesian model. Mm. Depends how you look at that. Where, which book did you get this from? One of them is Household. Oh, oh right. Thank you. Right. Okay. You mean channels? Okay, right, okay, right, sorry, right. Okay, so you've got the consumption channel, which is households, you've got investment channel, which is businesses, you've then got government channel, obviously government, and then you've got the foreign trade channel, which is net exports, exports, minus imports. Correct. Thank you. What country has the highest life expectancy? In the world now? Yeah. Uh, France? Hong Kong. Okay. <laughs> In 1926, James Keynes wrote the book, The End of Laissez-Faire. What does laissez-faire mean in economics? Free trade. Or leave alone. But essentially means unregulated business or trade. Yeah. Thanks. Finish the J.M. Gaines quote. Markets can remain, remain irrational longer than you can remain what? Never heard that one before. Solvent. Oh, thank you, yeah. Yeah, it makes sense, but I've never heard that one before. Did J.M. Keynes describe himself as A, capitalist, B, socialist, C, a sea turtle? Um... Well, he's a social democrat, so I think he probably ultimately said he's capitalist. Incorrect. What did he say? Socialist. You're joking. No. No socialist that I know, bruv. <laughs> Who was the last Tsar of Russia? Last Tsar of Russia, Nicholas. Nicholas. The, the, the one that got shot in the cellar? The, the one that looked like every other king of Europe at the time, because they're all into cousins. bread. Cousins. How many ghosts chase Pac-Man at the start of each game? How many? Ghosts. Four. Correct. Finish the... Do you know what Pac-Man's eating as well going round? <laughs> Children. They ain't... Them flashing things mm. that make him go a bit wild-eyed. Yeah. yeah, what's Ecstasy. that? Ecstasy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> can you finish the title of these books by Jane Keynes? Yes. Bonus point if you can give the year. Okay. It was published. A blank on money. Treatise on money, 1930. <sighs> Correct. The blank theory of employment, interest and money. The general theory, 1936. Correct. A blank of monetary reform. Oh, man. A tract on monetary reform, 1924? Oh, 23. Oh, God. Um, it was tract, though, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 See, that's cultural capital for you. I know big words. Five letters. <laughs> what European country experienced the highest rate of population decline from 2015 to 2020? Uh, European country, it's going to be one of the, I'm going to say something like uh, it was exiting one of the East European countries. 
No. Nope. That's not an answer. <laughs> Estonia. Lithuania. Oh, very close. Reiki. I know. Come on. Half a uh, point at is, least for that. Uh, that is. I was in the neighbourhood. That, <laughs> that is. Uh, final question. How many minutes are in a full week? Um, Five, four. I can't do it in a full three, week. I know there are 186, uh, 160 one, hours times 60. I can't do that. Well, you're not supposed to do the math, you're supposed to know it. 168 times 60, I can't do that that quick. Oh. I can do that that quickly. Go on then, 10,080. Oh, you've got the answer in front of you. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if there's a, it's on the, on, the, on the phone. I've got 168 hours, it'd be cool. Right, that is, uh, you got mm, an yeah. amount of points. <laughs> that wasn't counting. Was something really weird, yeah. Um, 13 out of a possible... 18. Oh, it's all right, yeah. Quite pleased yeah. with that. End, uh, of, end, of, end of the term. I'm tired after a, can I just say, a full teaching day and a lunchtime duty? I know. Don't pay General enough, Hero sat over here. I know. Yeah, well, thank you. I yeah. do. I do deserve that. Yeah. Well, you can't tell. It's been a pleasure having you on, sir. It's all right. First I've, I've guest really of the enjoyed it. podcast. I've really enjoyed it. You can, I'd, I'd, I'd be willing to come back if you can stomach it. Absolutely. If you can take the hot takes. I'm sure there's plenty more hot takes to come. There, there will be. You yeah. need your asbestos suit. You know? <laughs> yeah. I'll invest. I'll Remember invest. Your hot takes from the the um, the, the, the fire-headed people. Oh, yeah. That's what you expect. <laughs> That's exactly. Now, uh, um, on next episode of Reason Podcast, Miss McWilliam on why ginger people have more fun. Well, <laughs> takes a nice shirt, a good aftershave and some shiny shoes. <laughs> Thank you for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the first episode of the Reason Podcast. Next episode, Casper uh, will be joining us again, and we'll have a, a normal episode for you. So, yeah, hope you enjoyed. We'll see you in the next one.